excited this morning. You've come on a great day because we are jumping into a brand new series, our Christmas series called Discover Christmas. And the way we're going to discover Christmas is we're going to be looking through what we call the four words of Christmas. And those words are hope, peace, joy, and love. I love those words. They, don't, they just feel right. They feel, um, they feel good. And uh, these are words that for hundreds of years, uh, the church has applied to the Sundays of Advent. Now, Advent is the season between Thanksgiving and Christmas Day. So it's the Sundays that lead up to that. And each one of those Sundays is given one of these words. And the reason we call it Advent, the reason we call it the season of Advent, Advent is because that word means coming or arrival. So that this season is our anticipation and our longing and our excitement and our looking forward to the coming and to the arrival of Jesus. It's why we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. It's why we sing great Christmas hymns like, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, because we are anticipating the coming of Christ. And so these words, hope and peace and joy and love, these words haven't been just pulled out of nothing, what we find are these words are intrinsically woven into the narrative of, uh, of the story of Christmas and into the narrative of the coming of Christ, going all the way back to the Old Testament. Here's what, here's what, here's what I mean. If you get back to those promises of God in the Old Testament, what you find are these words. God made promises that he would send one who would redeem and restore his people back to himself, one who would bring the rule and reign of God. And what you see in Isaiah 11 is we find the promise of one who would give hope to all people. In Isaiah chapter 9, we find the promise of one who would come as the prince of peace, restoring peace between God and man. And then in Isaiah 9 and in Isaiah 12, God promised that he would send one who would give light to his people who were walking in darkness, and that because of that, he would increase their joy, and they would sing for joy because the Holy One of Israel was among them. And then in Isaiah 53, we see the promise of God's love and the declaration of God's love in how he promised that he would send one who would take up our infirmities and who would carry our sorrows and who we would consider stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted, but he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement of our sin that brings us peace was upon him and by his wounds we will be healed. He makes that promise of love to us. These are the promises given hundreds and thousands of years before the coming of Christ, all fulfilled in the person of Christ. And so this morning we're going to dive into that first word of Christmas, which is hope. Now, Christmas is a very hopeful season, right? There's a lot of kids hoping for something awesome, hoping they get to unwrap uh, something they really want on Christmas morning. Maybe there's some adults hoping that as well, but hoping that they're going to get what they, hoping in the possibility of something really cool. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever had the experience on Christmas morning of opening up a gift 
that was just eh, just a skosh below what you had hoped for, just a, just, a, just a fraction beneath where you had set your expectation. Anybody ever have that experience where you open? Mostly it was wives that just raised their hands. F- fellas, <laughs> we are terrible gift givers. So you open your gift, right, and it's just a, just a, just a little bit beneath what you expected. And so I'll, I'll give you an example of, of when this happened to me. Uh, the year was 1986. Uh, I'm, I'm over it, kind of. And an amazing movie had come out in March of 1986, and I wonder who saw this movie with me. Rad. Who saw that right there? Come on. Come on. That, oh gosh, so many people didn't grow up in the admonition and fear of the Lord. I'm sorry. This is a great movie. You need to go watch it. So this is a movie uh, about uh, these BMX bike riders who were in these really cool races and did all these tricks riding around on bicycles. And when I saw this movie, I knew God was calling me to do that forever for the rest of my life. And so all I wanted was a 1986 Mongoose BMX bicycle with the front and back foot pedals. All right, that's all I wanted. No big deal. And I uh, put it on the Christmas list. I sent it out into the ether and said, here's what I want. Uh, Mongoose BMX, front and back foot pedals. So I get up on Christmas morning and I come into the living room with the expectation of, ha- of seeing a 1986 Mongoose BMX with front and back foot pedals. And instead, I see a bicycle. It's there, um, but it's not a Mongoose. It's not a BMX bike, and there are no front and back foot pedals. Now, I immediately went from the hope of possibility to the deflation of this thing coming in just under what I expected. Now, here's the truth. Um, Did I become a BMX uh, professional racer? No. Is it because my parents wouldn't invest in me? Yeah, it is. Okay, it's the reason. And I'm not bitter at all. Uh, <laughs> my mom was in the eight o'clock service. She just sat over there shaking her head. You are such an idiot. And so, uh, first of all, I had no context of how expensive those bikes were. And me and my brother went through about three bikes a piece a year because we would ramp them into lakes and cow ponds and every other thing that was nonsense. And so, um, but there was an expectation, there was a possibility, and it came under just beneath what I wanted. And I think oftentimes, church, we live our lives um, with less than what God has promised to us. There are times that, that, especially during the holiday season, we live our lives with our minds on other things and our hearts focused on other things, and we experience less hope than what God has promised He can give, and less joy, and less peace, and, and less love than what He has promised us in His Word. But listen, this is the season of hope because Jesus is the God of hope, and as we fix our eyes on Him, what we're going to see this morning is an ever-increasing, satisfying hope. Here's why. Because true and lasting hope isn't found in something I can unwrap. It isn't found in a possession or a position. It is found in the promises of God and in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where true and lasting hope is found. And so I want you to grab your Bibles and go with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And we're going to start in verse 4. And to give you a little bit of context, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome and in verse, in, excuse me, in chapter 14 and 15, he is encouraging them to live in unity with one another. Here's why. Because the church in Rome had converted Jews who had become Christians in Jesus as well as 
Gentiles who had become uh, believers in Christ, but the Jews didn't really care for the Gentiles. They kind of considered them unclean. And so um, Paul is writing this portion of his letter, trying to encourage the church to put the needs of others in front, to bear with one another, to encourage one another, to walk in unity. And he begins to do this by pointing out the example of bearing with one another and putting the needs of others first that we have in Christ. And then from there, Paul begins to uh, teach us about the hope that we have in Christ and in the promises of God. So we're going to pick it up in verse 4 of Romans chapter 15. God's word says this, for whatever was written in former days, he's talking about the Old Testament, the prophecies, the promises of God, right? Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. We might have hope. And then may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify God and fa- the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And in him will the Gentiles hope. There's that word again. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Just in Romans chapter 15, Paul gives three uh, distinct, very unique and beautiful names of God to help us understand who he is. He calls him, in verse 5, the God of endurance and encouragement. Who could use some endurance and encouragement this morning? Right? That's, he's the God of endurance, the God of encouragement. In verse 13, he calls him the God of hope. And in the very last verse of this chapter, verse 33, he calls him the God of peace. And I don't, I don't know about you, but just remembering for me who our God is, it begins to awaken my heart to Him in a fresh way this morning. And I don't know if with me you need your heart to be awakened to God in a fresh way this morning, but I want Him to do that among us, and I want Him to do that because of who He is. And so I just want us to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Um, And if you need that today, if you need God to just, in a fresh way, awaken your heart, then let's pray to the God of endurance and encouragement and hope and peace that he would do that among us, okay? Father, I'm asking that in Jesus' name you would do that very thing, Lord, that you would awaken our hearts. Um, God, I need that that freshness, that freshening, that awakening today, God, and it isn't something I can manufacture. It is something that the God of endurance and encouragement has to do the God of hope has to do and the God of peace has to do 
in me. God, we need it. Your people need it. Your bride, the bride of Christ, we need it. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would come and draw near to us. Speak to our hearts, God. Let us hear your voice. Let us see your word and understand it. And God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you illuminate it and and cause it to be alive in us today. So let the words of life be in this place. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want us to see this morning as we look at this word hope from the scriptures is how it is that we can have a true and lasting hope. I'm talking about a hope that sustains us, a hope that endures hardship, and a hope that is ever-increasing in joy and in satisfaction. And so there's five things that I want us to unpack, and I know that's a lot of points. Don't worry, I've carved out 90 to 120 minutes for the sermon. It's no big deal. And so, um, is he kidding? I don't know, maybe. And so... Um, But I want us to navigate through God's word and see how is it that God has promised and then how is it that he gives us true and lasting hope. Here's the first thing. True and lasting hope flows from the nature of God. It flows from the nature of God. We're going to spend most of our time in verse 13 of Romans 15, and this is what it says. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Before Paul tells us um, what God will do for us, before he tells us what God can do and even what God begins to promise, before he tells us what God will do, he tells us who God is. He says, this is the God of hope. Now, he wants to give you joy, and he wants to fill you with peace. And as you believe in him, those things will increase, and your hope will increase. But that isn't because of something we can do. It is simply because of who he is. Abounding hope, true and lasting hope, flows from the nature of God, which which births a question in my mind, which is, Well, then what is the nature of God? If my hope flows from the nature of God, if it flows from who he is, then who is he? Who is he? And I want us to navigate just some places in God's word this morning where we see who God is and we have the nature of God illuminated for us. Right here in Romans 15, we've seen this morning, he's the God of hope. He's the God of endurance and encouragement. He's the God of peace. Now, we know that in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls him the God of all comfort. Oh, who could use some comfort today? He's the God of all comfort. In 1 John chapter 4, he's the God of love. In Psalm 25, uh, the psalmist says he's the God of salvation. In John 14, we see him as the God of truth. In Genesis chapter 1 and in John chapter 1, he's the God of creation. This is the all-knowing God. This is the ever-present God. This is the unchangeable God of Numbers 23, and this is the all-powerful God in Jeremiah 
32. This is the miracle-working God of Galatians 3, and it's the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God of Hebrews chapter 10. This is the God who is the bread of life, the God that is the bright and morning star, the God who is the light of the world. He's the great shepherd and the great I am. Listen, church, he's the infinite God. He is the holy God. He's the God of justice. He's the merciful God, and he's the God of glory. Listen to me. This is the God who is our advocate. He's our righteousness. He's our strength. He's our healer. He's our teacher. He's our intercessor, and he is our redeemer. This is the God who equips us. He fills us, he sustains us, he anoints us, and he renews us. This is the God of infinite worth. He's the God of eternal praise. He's the God of abundant life, and he's the God of unceasing faithfulness. And in Revelation chapter 1, we see that he is the God who is the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And in all of that, what I find staggering is that this God of glory chooses to be Emmanuel, who is God with us. How can that be true? How can it be true that that God, the God of glory, eternal, how can it be true that he would become Emmanuel? God with us. True and lasting hope isn't manufactured in your best effort. It flows from the nature of God. It flows from who God is. He's the God of hope. It's the first thing I want us to see. Here's the second thing. True and lasting hope is rooted in the promises of God. It's rooted in the promises of God. Look at verse 8 through 12 of Romans 15. Paul says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to this circumcised, that's the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles, that's us, might glorify God for his mercy. And now Paul is about to um, list out some of these promises of God to the Gentiles. He says, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again in Isaiah, it says, the root of Jesse will come. By the way, that is a direct name and a direct prophecy about Jesus. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. What is Paul doing here? What is Paul doing here is while he's reminding them of all these promises that God made in the Old Testament, he is helping them establish a hope that is rooted in the promises of God given and in the promises of God kept in Christ. He's helping them set their roots and to set the roots of their hope into the fertile soil and into the good uh, life-giving ground of God's promises. And listen, that's where we have to root our hope as well. Our hope has got to be rooted in the, in the life-giving ground of God's promises. Church, this is more than fingers crossed wishful thinking. It's not that. It's, it's, it's deeper than that. 
Paul is building a case for why the God of hope that he's about to call them to follow and give their life to, why the God of hope is worthy of that belief and that faith. Because time and time again, we see in the Old Testament that God made these promises to his people and, and to the Gentiles that he would send one who would bring God's kingdom, that he would bring a redeemer, that he would bring a Messiah. And listen, these promises weren't generic these weren't generic promises that, that anybody could have shown up on the scene and fulfilled. These were specific promises. They were detailed promises. Let me, let me just point out a few. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, God promised the place where the Messiah would be born. He said, you're going to be born in Bethlehem. And where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. We see in uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, and then in Isaiah 32, one, excuse me, in um, Psalms 132, uh, God promised the line that the Messiah would come from. He said he's going to be born of David's line. In Isaiah 7, we see the, supernat the promise of the supernatural means by which the Savior would be born. He said he would be born of a virgin. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, he promised the kind of person that the Messiah would be. He said this baby will be born to be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of, the, of Peace. Paul is saying, look, I want you to have a hope, and I want you to set the roots of your hope in the reality that the promises of God that he made have been fulfilled. They've been kept. In that same way, God is calling us to set the roots of our hope in the promises of God. About seven or eight years ago, Carrie and I tried our hand at uh, gardening. Now, before you're super judgy, I'll just tell you, I'm terrible at it. And uh, I'm not really good at it and found out I don't like it. Um, we, it wasn't a big deal. Who, who's a gardener in here? You have a thriving garden and you're really good at it. Great. So we're all the same except for one. Great. <laughs> we're all terrible at growing things. Um, we had this little raised garden. wasn't a big deal. We planted uh, some tomatoes and peppers and some squash and... Uh, some watermelon planted in the garden. And uh, on one side of the garden, we had tomatoes and peppers. And they did really well. Man, they thrived. But right down the middle, on the other side of the garden, was the squash and the watermelon. And eh, they didn't do so great. And I would go out and I was like, nothing's growing. Nothing's happening. And then very slowly something would start to happen, but it would dry up very quickly. And I noticed that those plants were starting to die. So I went and I thought, I'm just going to clear all that out. And as I was clearing that out, here's what I discovered. The tomatoes and the peppers roots had gotten down through the garden and had already gotten down into the good soil beneath down there. But on the other half of the garden, the squash and the watermelons that was drying up and and, and, and just falling apart and dying. The roots hadn't gotten more than about an inch in the dirt. And they weren't getting the life-giving nutrients and they weren't able to draw the water up and they weren't getting life. What's the point? The point is this. There is a difference between godly, thriving hope and wishful thinking and the difference is found in the roots. And the roots of our hope have to get down into the good soil of God's promises. Church, this is why we must take hold of God's word. 
This is why we must take hold of where those promises are found. Because in God's word is where we discover who he says he is and where we see what he says he will do for us and can do for us. How can I take hold of the promise that he will never leave me or forsake me? How can I take hold of the promise that he will cause everything in my life to work for my good and for his glory? How can I take hold of the promise that he's the one who began the good work in me and that he will see it through to the day of completion? How can I take hold of the promise that he will provide all that I need according to his riches in glory? How do I take hold of the promise that his divine power has given me everything I need to live a life of godliness? Now, can you trust me that it's in the word? Maybe, but listen to me. Your hope begins to take root when you begin to take hold of this. I think this is why David said, I'm going to hide your word in my heart. This is why in Psalm 1, we see that the psalmist writes, there is a man who is planted like a tree next to the water and he yields his fruit in season and his leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. You want to know what he said about that man? He said, that man meditates on the word of God day and night. What is he saying? He sets his roots of hope down in the promises of God. And as your roots are set in the promises of God, your hope becomes rock solid because his word is rock solid. The lasting power of my hope is intrinsically linked to the anchor of my hope. Are you with me? The lasting power of my hope is intrinsically linked to the anchor. So let me ask you, who are you hoping in? Are you hoping in the God of hope? Are you setting your roots? Because when we hope in Jesus, when we take hold of him through God's word, we are set free from hoping in idols that make promises that can never deliver. Who has made, and I have, you just, you can, you can look across the story of your life and go, I see where I'm, I was believing a promise from an idol that could never deliver what I had hoped I would get from it. Maybe that idol was a person. Maybe you believed that a person was going to give and deliver. Maybe it was a position. You were, you were hoping for a certain job. Or, but believing in an idol that made promises it could never deliver. You know what sets you free from that? Putting your roots down in the promises of God. You're set free from that. So, true and lasting hope has to flow from the nature of God. It has to be rooted in the promises of God. And then it, when we have real, true, and lasting hope, it's going to produce the joy and peace of God. It's going to produce the joy and peace of God. Look again at verse 13. Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. This is the power of a Godward hope at work in us. When hope that is born in the nature of God and rooted in the promises of God begins to grow in our lives, the fruit of that hope is the joy and peace of God. And Paul doesn't talk about this joy and peace in minimal, safe terms. He says that 
the true and lasting hope that we find in God will fill you up with all joy and peace. The picture is of abounding. It's of overflowing. You know, I want us to have clarity when we talk about those two words, joy and peace. Those are two words of Christmas that we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. But often, I think when we hear those words, we receive them and translate them into our heart and our mind as less than what God's Word actually intends. Here's what I mean. A lot of times we hear joy and we think happiness and that lessens it. Joy is more than happiness. And sometimes we hear peace, and we think peace is the absence of struggle, and that misses the point altogether. Because peace isn't the absence of struggle, it's the settledness in your heart going through struggle. Are you with me? Not, I'm like you. I'm with you. I wish peace meant the absence of struggle. I really do. But God never promised that. Jesus never promised that. And as a matter of fact, he promised the opposite. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. <laughs> but I leave you my peace. That where I am, you will also be there. What's the point? Joy is not happiness. Peace is not the absence of struggle. So what are they? I'll give you two little quick, easy definitions. Joy is the internal satisfaction of the soul. Think about that for just a moment. It's the internal satisfaction, contentment of the soul. And peace is the internal steadiness of the soul. Now, this kind of joy and peace, listen, is not circumstantial. Your circumstances can't give you an internal satisfaction in your soul and an internal steadiness in your soul. It's not circumstantial. This is a soul-level uh, uh, thing Meaning what? It means this is not something circumstances can define, but rather something that defines your circumstances. This is critical for us. Listen, imagine if you were to bring to every situation in your life right now that feels out of control. Just think with me about whatever that might be. It just feels unsettled. It's less than what you want. Maybe it just feels out of control. What is that situation for you? Now imagine if you were to bring to that situation an internal contentment and satisfaction and an internal steadiness that was born in your soul. Would it change the way you see that situation? Would it change the way that you walk through it? Because listen to me, only a soul that has been transformed by the gospel can have this. I can't, I can't do that on my own. I can't satisfy my own soul. I can satisfy my flesh for a moment, and that's typically what we do, but that's not what's promised. What's promised is a soul-level satisfaction I can't do that on my own and neither can you. I can't steady my own soul. This is the result of a transformed life that's been made new by the gospel. This kind of joy and peace that fills us up, fills us up because of what God has done for us in salvation through the cross, what he is doing for us in sanctification, making us more like Christ, and what he will do for us in glorification when we are in heaven. In other words, um, I can abound in the joy and peace of God because he has saved me from hell, 
He is saving me from myself and from the power of sin, and he will save me to eternity with him. And that kind of joy and peace, when I have that, when my soul is satisfied, when my soul is settled, it becomes the lens, it becomes the filter that I see every circumstance in. I want to bring that to the circumstance. Too many of us are letting our life tell us who we are and what we have and how we should be. And God's word says there is an abounding, overflowing, fill you up kind of joy and peace. And you need to take that to meet every struggle you have. It's a joy. This, is the, this kind of hope produces the joy and peace of God. Here's the fourth thing. True and lasting hope is activated by faith in God. It's activated by faith in God. Look again at Romans 15, 13. Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in what? Say that word. Believing. In believing. Church, faith, our believing, and hope are intrinsically, vitally, and inseparably linked to one another. God's word says that the God of hope will give you the joy and will give you the peace in believing. Well, what does that mean? It means that true and lasting hope is only activated by my faith and by my believing in God. Here's why. Because, the, the, because faith is the substance of my hope. Faith is what my hope is made of. It's, it's what gives me hope. What I believe in is what gives me hope. It's the substance of my hope. Belief in the promises of God activates in my life a hope in God, which then begins to produce the joy and peace from God. In other words, faith gives life to my hope. True and lasting hope is the evidence of faith in God. Now think with me for, for, for a moment about someone that you know who loves the Lord and you watched them walk through a very, very difficult thing. Maybe they, maybe they lost someone, lost a child, maybe they went through a sickness, maybe their marriage went through something terrible. You, you, you watched them navigate through something very, very difficult. And as they did, you had this thought about them. How do they have hope right now? How are they walking through that with joy and with peace? How do, how do they do that? Because enduring hope in God is an evidence of faith in God. They're doing that because they recognize their hope is going to come from God, not in this situation getting better. They've set their roots in the promises of God, not in their best effort. They've allowed the joy and the peace that God promises to be coming up out of them, and they're bringing that to meet the circumstance, not letting the circumstance tell them whether or not they get to have joy. This is, this is activated by faith in God. And you go, yeah, that's the problem, Pastor Matt. My faith is weak. It struggles. I struggle to believe. Well, you know what? You're in the right place and you're on the right. Dri I drive the struggle bus for hard to believe. I'm the captain of the ship. 
We all struggle to believe. Can we just admit that? We struggle to hold on to the promises of God. We struggle to believe them and to And we all battle unbelief. The question is not, are we going to have to battle for belief in the promises of God? The question is, how do I win the battle? That's the question. And the answer is this. Winning the battle of unbelief will never be found in the strength of your faith. It will be found in the object of your faith. We just think, if I just believe a little harder... If I have a little more faith, this is going to work out. No, if you get your eyes off of you and more on Jesus, your faith will grow. Faith is less about how strong is my faith and more about who is my faith in. It isn't about the strength of it. It's about the object of it. Let me prove that to you in God's word. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every battle, every struggle to believe, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? To who? To Jesus. And who is he? He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The Bible says that Jesus is the object of our faith. The writer says we're going we're gonna to look to him. Look to Jesus. He's the object. Then it says he's the founder. What does that mean? It means it begins in him. It's built on him. And then he's the perfecter, meaning it is sustained by him and it finds completion in him. This is why we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because it gets my eyes off of me. Church, the battle of unbelief is one when the promises of God are louder than the doubts in our hearts. The battle for unbelief is one when the promises of God get louder than the doubts in our hearts. The question is, how do I turn up the knob on the promises of God? I take root in his word, and I fix my eyes on Jesus. That's how I turn up the knob of faith and of believing. That's how I do it. It is activated by faith in God. Here's the last thing. True and lasting hope increases through the presence of God. It increases through the presence of God. Look at the last part of verse 13. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Listen, my own will and my own power will never reach the place of abounding hope. I can't do it. I can't do it. Ever-increasing hope is only attained in an ever-increasing nearness to God. Are you with me? Ever-increasing hope is only found in an ever-increasing nearness and intimacy with God. Paul says the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in our lives, is what makes us abound in hope. 
So let, let me ask you, when was the last time that in your prayers you prayed for more of God's presence in your life? To be honest with you, I pray a lot of prayers and sometimes that's not even in there. When was the last time you asked God more of you? More of you, God. More of your presence. More of your nearness. More of you in my heart. More of you in my life, in my eyes, in, in what I see, in what I hear, and in what I say. More. When was the last time you just asked God for more of his presence? More of his. This is why I think in Hebrews 4, the writer calls us to draw near to the throne of grace. This is why Asaph in Psalm chapter 73 said, But as for me, it is good to be near God. You guys hear me quote this verse all the time, but it's why it says in Psalm 16, in your presence, in nearness to you, there is fullness of joy. Paul says God wants to fill us up with all joy. How do we get there? In the presence of God. True and lasting hope increases through the presence of God. So why do we call Christmas a season of hope? Because when Jesus was born, hope was born. Amen? When Jesus was born, hope was born. And listen, he is the only hope for those who are separated from God. And he is the, the glorious, life-enriching, ever-increasing hope for those who have been born again. Because listen, here's the reality for all humanity. None of us are exempt. The reality for humanity is this. All of us are under the same plague of sin. We all have the same sickness. We all have the same plague, and it's called sin. But the beauty of Christmas is this. God stepped into our plague. He stepped into our plague. And through the cross, through him dying for our sins, he gave us the good medicine to deal with that plague. And then in the resurrection from the dead, he eradicated the power of that plague over our lives. That's Christmas. It isn't what you unwrap. It's who you see. It's do you have your eyes on the object of your faith because he got into your sickness. He got into your plague. That's what the prophecy of Isaiah 53 was about. Surely he took up our infirmities, our sickness, and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced on the cross for our transgression to give us that good medicine. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement that brings us peace was upon him. And by the wounds that poured out his blood, we are healed from the plague. That's Christmas and nothing else. So how do I grow my lasting hope, enduring hope, a Godward, life-giving hope? I fix my eyes on the object of my faith. Maybe this morning that is just something you've never done. If you're honest with yourself, you would say, I've never really made Jesus the Lord of my life. There is not a time in my life that I can point to and go, here's where I met Jesus and he changed me forever. It's not there. Oh, I've always come to church, but I've never been changed by Christ. If that's you this morning, can I tell you something? The God of hope wants to change your life today. He wants to get in your plague and he wants to heal you and he wants to restore you and he wants to break the power of that plague over you. And you can do that this morning. You can come, take one of us by the hand.
We would love to do that with you. For some of you, this morning needs to be about, I've got to get my eyes off the circumstances, hoping that they will give me joy, and I've got to bring the joy of the Lord and the peace of the Lord to meet that circumstance. Some of us just need to get our hope back in God, the God of hope. That's who he is. That's who he's promised to be. That is who he's pursuing you to become in your life. Let's fix our eyes on the God of hope this Christmas. Father, as we respond now, as we worship and and sing and just hear what you're calling us to do, I'm praying that your voice would be loud in this place, God. That you indeed would give us hope that you would call us to the hope of salvation and the hope of heaven, that you would call us to an abundant life that you promised in John 10 when we fix our eyes on you. So Holy Spirit, come and move among us. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.